0: Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back with part two of our discussion of the history of toilet technology. In the last episode, you you should probably go back if you haven't and listen to that episode first before you listen to this one. That's where we get all into the history of toilets in ancient civilizations, into uh, latrine tech, into the cloaca maxima, the the, the maximum sewer of ancient Rome. sailing
0: a ship right through it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, today we're going to get more into directly into the invention of the flush toilet. And I think we got to start off today by dispelling a common myth. That myth, and I've I've actually, I've heard this like repeated in movies and stuff. It Mm -hmm. seems to be a thing people actually do think is that the flush toilet was invented by a Mr. Thomas Crapper. Now, Crapper does play a role in the history of the toilet, but he is not its inventor by any means whatsoever. This right. is not even close. Yeah. Uh, now, first of all, we can debate about what it means to have a flush toilet if we're going to be discussing the, the idea of its invention. I'd say by some definitions, since waste was like washed away by water, you could argue that some pe- peoples of like ancient Rome and the ancient Indus Valley had flush toilets. But that's not usually what we mean when we say a flush toilet. We We usually mean a device— that automatically removes waste with a simple mechanism. It's not like a hole over a drain pipe in which you can pour water. It's not something that constantly has water running underneath it. It's a machine with a mechanical flushing action that doesn't need to be situated over like a flowing ditch or anything like that.
0: And so there are a number of technologies that really need to be in place for this to come together. Like your your plumbing technology has to – has to reach the appropriate level of advancement before you can uh, attach a toilet as we uh, – a modern flushing toilet to the scenario.
1: And to and make it practical, yeah. And right. this is going to be a big problem with the earliest models of the flush toilet. So to see one of the uh, – pr- probably uh, the first real flush toilet in the sense we mean, but an impractical early model, we need to meet a poet. Uh, and I think that it is appropriate that the first real flush toilet – was created by a poet. Uh, We (laughs) mentioned him in the last episode. Enter Sir John Harrington. So Sir John Harrington was an English courtier uh, and an author who lived from 1560 or 1561 to 1612. uh, And his life story is that his father had repeatedly sort of married up into royal circles. First, his dad married one of Henry VIII's illegitimate daughters, and then later his father married a woman who served uh, Queen Elizabeth I before she was queen. And this seems to be what led to Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, becoming John Harrington's godmother, uh, though apparently – Little John Harrington was a troublesome godson. He was prone to writing on embarrassing and morally impure subjects that repeatedly got him in trouble with the crown. He he wrote insulting stuff about other uh, kind of, you know, pompous court people. Uh, as for his literary works, he was probably best known for his translation of the Italian poet Ludovico Ariosto's epic Orlando Furioso. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we, we can come back and mention that in a minute. But uh, that's like a that, – doesn't Orlando Furioso – it's got like a big dragon slaying thing in it. I'm trying to remember. I know I came across it when I was in school.
0: That sounds familiar. I'm a, I, 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 feel, I feel like I read it in school as well, but I don't recall much about it. But at any rate, this Harrington guy, it sounds a little bit like he was kind of a, a, a brat.
1: Yeah, a little bit. Well, I mean, so he he wrote these poems and epigrams and who boy, you know, you can find these online. I don't know. Maybe something's lost in the mix here. But if this guy considered himself a poet first, I really hope his toilets were good. (laughs) Uh, So the poems are full of like really obvious groan-inducing turns of phrase. And then all these kind of catty burns on other courtiers (laughs) who, uh, who he gives these like classical-influenced nicknames like Sextus and Itis. Um, it also seems, it seems to me at least, like Harrington was sort of kind of a fan of himself. Like he th- he thought he was pretty cool. Robert, do you feel like reading a couple of his short little poems here?
0: Oh, sure. Why not?
1: Okay. So this is, uh, this is one he wrote called uh, A Comparison of a Book with Cheese. Old Heywood writes, and proves in some degrees, that one may well compare a book with cheese. Every market some buy cheese to feed on, at every mart some men buy books to read on. All sorts eat cheese, but how? There is the question. The poor for food, the rich for good digestion. All sorts read books, but why will you discern? The fool to laugh, the wiser sort to learn. The sight, taste, scent of cheese to some is hateful. The sight, taste, sense of books to some's ungrateful. No cheese there was that ever pleased all feeders. No book there is that ever liked all readers. Yeah, I
0: already hate this guy.
1: (laughs) You're about to like it even better here. This one's just a short four line epigram here. It's called Against Writers That Carp at Other Men's Books.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this one sounds like there's a little venom in this.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the readers and the hearers like my books, but yet some writers cannot them digest. But what care I? For when I make a feast, I would my guests should praise it, not the cooks.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: So it's an A-B-B-A rhyme scheme there. But I think he's saying like, hey, I don't write for the critics. I write for the fans, man.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I mean maybe this is all just – like if we think of the the literary uh, scene at the time as being like kind of – you know, kind of like a a feud-driven hip-hop culture than maybe, (laughs) Uh um, you know, that's probably the place for all of this. Well, there's some
1: of that. I mean, I get the feeling that he was sort of, he was sort of like a, you know, a man about the court. He was like within the scene. Um, He was, he had all these relationships. His poems are very like gossipy and they're full of all these burns and stuff. You you get the sense they were sort of written not for a wide audience, but for a select audience who would get the, you know, who he is anonymously... Sending his burns at. I also notice how a lot of his work is about how his poetry is good, uh, how his critics are dumb, and about food and comparing things to food. It's I, kind of kind of weird, Alice.
0: I was really thrown back by the the idea that the poor eat cheese for food, but the rich only eat cheese for digestion. <laughs> That's <It's, laughs> just uh, I, I, I'm I'm missing something there.
1: Yeah, it's like uh, the rich don't need food. What? <laughs>
0: Seems like it reveals some kind of attitude. I can't quite put my finger on. Plus, eating nothing but cheese sounds exactly like the kind of thing that some, uh, you know, um, upper class royal would do and then be, you know, gouty for it.
1: Uh, didn't Henry the Eighth die of a surfeit of cheese? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so anyway, so John Harrington, little, little godson of Queen Elizabeth the First, John Harrington, he's busy at court. He's trying not to get caught up in political rat traps. And there's a lot of those going on right now. You know, there, there are all these plots. And stuff. Uh, he gets in trouble anyway. He writes some terrible poetry, at least in my opinion. I should point out that around the same time, this is around the same time that Shakespeare is writing his plays and Christopher Marlowe. And at one point, Harrington addresses some of his little barbs and epigrams to somebody named Faustus. Oh. I have to wonder if
0: Christopher Marlowe is the target. <laughs> Solid burn, referring to uh, to him as the as the, this great work uh, that he would forever be remembered for. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And yet we don't we didn't even name the toilet after Harrington. So
1: I decree all the toilets in the land will be named Harringtons.
0: All right. So how does he get around to inventing the toilet? It sounds like he has a pretty full plate. Uh, with all of this, uh, uh, these promos that he's cutting on other literary figures.
1: Well, he's getting in, so he he gets in and out of trouble. Like uh, apparently uh, one of the, the, I mentioned earlier the thing he's most famous for historically is this translation of Orlando Furioso. Uh, Apparently the the way the story goes is that he had translated one particularly racy passage and he was sharing it around with ladies of the court and Queen Elizabeth was not amused Mm -hmm. and as punishment for his bawdy behavior and his corruption of good ladies. She told him he would be banished from the court, and that he shouldn't bother returning unless he had finished translating the entire epic poem. So he did. He finished the translation, and he came back, only to get banished again some years later for insults and toilet humor. <laughs> so sometime in this whole mix, it was in like the 1590s. It seems uh, I think maybe around 1594 or so. He actually invented the flush toilet. He he put together the plan for one, and he installed one. One in his home. And then later he actually installed one for Queen Elizabeth herself at her home at Richmond Palace in what was then Surrey. And uh, we have some details on this because in 1596, Harrington publishes his notes on the invention of the flush toilet in a very strange book-length text called A New Discourse on a Stale Subject called The Metamorphosis of Ajax. Okay. Uh, so this book is part description of an invention and part like satire and then part meditation on excrement and related (laughs) subjects. Uh, And a lot of like – it seems like a big part of it is just like a defense of him publishing the book that you're currently reading. Uh, I I was trying to understand like what the real vibe of this work is and it just seems extremely odd. Uh, The title is kind of interesting. What's the deal with the Metamorphosis of Ajax – Harrington apparently referred... To the flush toilet he had he had invented as Ajax, as in like A-J-A-X, the mm-hmm. character in the Iliad, right? You know, the great Greek warrior. Yes. Uh, and so apparently this is a pun on the word jakes, which was already at the time a slang word for a toilet. Obviously it wouldn't be a flush toilet, but for like, you know, normal types of like pit toilets and stuff, it would be like go into the jakes or, you know, I'm going to go sit on the jakes. It's kind of like I need to use the john.
0: Oh, all right. So now we have the cle- the clever uh, nature of the title is revealed, but it's still weird. It's, it still makes me wonder <laughs> yeah. what stage his syphilis was was at <laughs> at the time. Well, maybe we should take a quick break, and then
1: when we come back, we will discuss uh, we will discuss the details of Harrington's invention this this flush toilet model.
0: All right, we're back. So we have a bratty, privileged court poet who has managed to invent well ahead of its time a flushing toilet.
1: Yeah, and,
0: and wrote a book
1: about it. He calls it Ajax. I do like that name. I mean, even though it's kind of a groan-inducing pun, a lot of what he seems to be doing is like groan-inducing humor. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I like the idea of the toilet being Ajax. It's this Achaean hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he's he's working on his water closet device. Uh, we, we should say that the water closet device that he made, the Ajax, it no longer exists. There aren't any like models you can find. I like to imagine it was dismantled and it's part C Used to make gifts for the French royal family. <laughs> there, there aren't any today, but there are like replicas based on the description. And if you see one of these, it's like a huge two-level wooden box that looks sort of like an upright piano. <laughs> and the the box hides its inner workings inside these wood panels, basically has two major parts. It's got a bowl that you – do your stuff in. You, you know, you poop in the bowl, and then it's got a hole in the bottom of the bowl leading to a drainage pipe. And this drainage pipe could go wherever. At the time, of course, there was not like a organized plumbing and sewage system, so it would probably be going into like a a pit. You know, mm-hmm. like a a, a cesspit. And then above that, you've got a cistern that stores water just like on the back of – not exactly, but much like on the back of like a modern Western toilet. You've got right. a cistern where the flushing water is stored. The bowl itself was waterproofed with pitch and wax and resin. And so when you want to use the toilet, what you do is you lift a handle to release the stopper on the cistern above. So the cistern's got water on it. You release the stopper and this floods the bowl with water from the cistern. And then when you're done with your business, you lift a second handle and that this releases a stopper at the bottom of the bowl, which allows its contents to flow out into the drain pipe. And we should again emphasize – we talked about this in the last episode – that while we're focusing on the toilet itself today, like the sewer system that supports a toilet is the probably even more important invention for public sanitation because that – You know, that's necessary. Like a flush toilet that simply drains to the outdoors uh, or something like that, it leads to some of the same problems as other non-flushing methods like just throwing a chamber pot out the window. At the time of Harrington's invention, there was obviously not a modern sewer system in England. So this may have been an improvement of personal convenience like within your home, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't making the public sanitation issue any better. But as popular as like indoor flush toilets are today, you might guess, okay, so this was immediately an overnight sensation right everybody wanted these things and that's simply not the case no not at all uh, so we we only have evidence that Harrington ever built two of them. he built the one for himself and the other one for Queen Elizabeth. And this is probably for – well, so there are some serious problems with its design, right? First, each flush required a ton of water. <laughs> like it required about seven and a half gallons or 28 liters of water every single flush. Mm-hmm. And you'd have to find some way because they didn't have indoor plumbing at the time. You know, you'd have to find some way to constantly refill the cistern with water if you wanted to keep flushing, maybe manually with buckets or something. I don't know. And then, so, of course, that's troublesome work. And then a workaround, of course, that Harrington suggested is that, you know, maybe people could just keep using the toilet without flushing it until it was – so piled up that it was absolutely necessary oh
0: kind of if it's yellow let it mellow if it's uh, brown flush it down yeah. situation
1: yeah 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 except it, he suggested you know maybe you might want to let like 20 people poop in it before you flush <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> because
1: uh, because you know it's, it's just a lot gonna, of water it's, yeah. yeah it's a lot of water you got to carry that water up to the thing um, uh, this obviously just wasn't the most beautiful option I'm sure Queen Elizabeth was not a huge fan of just letting the poop pile up in there so it was uh, it was also obviously expensive to have one of these things and if you consider it, even though there was a mechanical stopper for the bowl drain, it probably would have smelled bad, you know, because yeah. like uh, you just get like stuff stuck in there and you'd have smells coming through. It just doesn't
0: seem all that great of a design. I'm reminded a lot of the jetpack in a way, you know, because today we have jetpacks. We've had jetpacks for for decades. Right. But can everybody have a jetpack? Uh, should everyone have a jetpack? Is the, the world properly um, – is the world ready for everyone to have a jetpack? It's not. And in the same sense, yes, flush toilets existed. Here is the example. And yet, um, you know, c- clearly this was not scalable. Like this was right. something that was, was more of a curiosity than yes. anything.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it was a, it was an extravagant, novel curiosity for the extremely wealthy. And it wasn't until – in actually until a couple of hundred years afterwards that really anybody else started trying to build and use flush toilets. Uh, basically, almost nobody else used flush toilets until like the 1770s. So, let's go to the 1770s then. Uh, so, around 1775, a watchmaker named Alexander Cumming or Alexander Cummings uh, files a patent for a flush toilet toilet. And his design introduces a crucial improvement. And I, th- I think this is a pretty clever one. It introduces the S-trap. And this is an ingenious solution for preventing the toilet from From becoming a gate, becoming a gateway for the demons of odor hell to climb up into your home. Because if you've got like a pipe connecting your toilet that's inside your house to the pit where all of the poop goes, Mm -hmm. you know, you you can imagine that there are going to be some smells coming up through it. So you would want to find a way to seal it off. In Harrington's water closet, the toilet bowl was sealed with this mechanical stopper plugging a hole in the bottom of the bowl. And after the bowl was flooded with water from the cistern above, you could operate a lever uh, to unplug the stopper and release the contents into the pipe below. The S-trap is different. There, the seal between the bowl and the sewer pipe is not just a mechanical stopper. Though Cummings model did have a mechanical stopper. It was like a slide valve. But it's also a seal made of the water itself. So the way it works is like this. The drainage pipe where things leave the toilet, it has a sideways S-shaped bend in it. So take a capital S, flip it on its side. I guess it could be a lowercase s too, huh? (laughs) You flip it on its side and then um, it's always going to be filled with water in the lower part of the bend, right? So uh, the reservoir of sitting water there in the bottom of the sideways S-shape forms this perfect natural seal that prevents sewer gas from escaping up the pipes into your home. And so S-traps like this are still used – today in, in modern drains and drains for sinks and toilets. And so here's some toilet news you can use. If you have ever noticed that there's like an unused drain in your home that smells bad, it's likely because the trap, like the water in the trap has evaporated and it's no longer forming a seal against the sewer gases below. So the easy fix is to just run some fresh water down the drain to flood the trap again. So I like that. S-Trap is very, very brilliant, elegant solution to a problem.
0: And yet, at the same time, the Ajax is still uh, undergoing its metamorphosis. <laughs> right. Yes, it is not finished yet. The Ajax
1: is still a kind of clunky, unwieldy figure, uh, kind of like the Ajax of. Well, well, I guess I'm trying to remember. I think of Ajax as kind of like big and buff and clunky. He was kind of
0: graceful too, I guess. You know, I'm not really remembering what Ajax, uh, what his main contribution was.
1: Oh, well, he's like a great warrior. He's one of the— Oh, well, they all are. Right, of course. But he—at uh, the end, he gets into the argument with Odysseus about the armor, and then he—I think he loses the debate, and then he falls on his sword because he does the—I think Athena drives him mad or something. I don't know. I,
0: Tensions were running pretty high, I guess and I the need, gods were involved. So. I gotta go back
1: and read the Iliad again, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, so we're talking about the Ajax machine. So there were some—even even though you've got the S-trap, there were some kinks in Cummings' design— that were worked out in later models by other inventors. Like one problem was apparently that it had a sliding valve. So you imagine it's got a valve at the bottom of the toilet bowl um, that, you know, it's different than most of the toilets we see today because it actually had like a lid that would close on the bottom. And, And this was like a sliding thing and this was a problem because of course it could get gross and gunky.
0: Yeah, like one of the most beautiful aspects of the modern toilet is that there are no moving parts coming into contact with fecal matter if you're using it correctly.
1: Exactly. Yes, yes. That's a very good point. Uh, So it could get gross and gunky, and it could freeze, and that's not good. Mm. Um, So this was later improved by being replaced with a downward opening flap valve. And uh, the patent for this innovation... Went to a water closet installer and inventor named Joseph Brahma, though I think there might be some disagreement about whether Brahma himself actually invented this, you know, flap modification, but he he held the patent for it. And then this model, the Brahma model, became popular and basically remained popular for those who could afford it until the mid-20th century, uh, and it, it spread around like – this did become like a – Kind of a sensation.
0: Yeah, this was the, the the version of the technology that really spread and became uh, uh, became a truly popular way to poop. <laughs> <laughs> but as
1: is often the case, I mean, it, part of the problem with the history of sanitation development and and like indoor access to toilet facilities had to do with money, right? It was mm-hmm. like people who could afford to install these kinds of toilet facilities, they would have them, but a lot of people couldn't afford that.
0: Yeah, like it, it often reminds me of the the fancy garbage can scenario. Mm-hmm. You know, like how, how much are you willing to pay for the thing in which you are going to put trash? Right. When a simpler model will... Will do the job, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, for many people, the, the idea of a flushing toilet was just ludicrous for for a number of reasons, most of which were financial.
1: Yeah. Uh, but I think one of the big things that helped push toilet technology along was the development of sewer infrastructure to support it. That right. made it that made it not just a, a thing that's nice to have, not just a, a more aesthetically pleasing way to have a home, but also a a major part of public health. And so, like in the mid nineteenth century in, in London, for example. It's a good example because London's getting very crowded. You've got the Industrial Revolution. Uh, crowded London was becoming just unbearable and in many ways because of its sewage and sanitation system. So you got a crowded city. Lots of people are using chamber pots and just emptying them into the streets or where there are ge- other generally uncontained ways of disposing of human waste. For example, water closets like the Brahma toilets not connected to a dedicated sewage system for waste mm. In these methods, you just have sewage draining off into simple sewers that were originally designed to just accept and and channel rainwater – um and of course then these sewers would later become sources of drinking water for other people or or the sewage would just end up in the river Thames and other water sources so in this period the city and the river just stank supposedly it was awful like in the 18 in 1850 uh the uh the english magazine punch published uh, the cartoon i've got here of what was supposed to be like a close-up illustration of what a drop of water from the Thames must look like. <laughs> and basically, it's full of like, it's got skeletal murder clowns, and it's got this snapping turtle with big hug arms, and it's got a Hieronymus Bosch-type bird man from Malibolga. It's just like crazy. I wish political cartoons were still this creative instead of just being like, some caricature of, you know, like an ugly guy that has like taxes written on him. <laughs> but anyway, the the point it's making is that, hey, we've got a problem. You know, the, the river that runs through the middle of our city is becoming absolutely filthy. And uh, of course, during the first half of the 1800s, there were, uh, we've talked about on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before, frequent cholera outbreaks, uh, I mean, all over the place and whenever there's like crowded human civilization, but was, they were frequently going on in London. Uh, we did the uh, We did an episode about uh, the This epidemiological history in uh, an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Miasma Theory that you can go and check out. But the short story there is that a surgeon named John Snow in uh, mid-19th century London eventually showed that the cause of these cholera outbreaks was the consumption of unclean water, which was tainted by mixing with sewage. And in the summer of 1858, all this septic horror culminated in this event that is known in history as the Great Stink or the Great Stink of London when the foul odor of the Thames and the city was just overwhelming. A commonly cited story about this period is that members of parliament were so like panicked, to get rid of the stink. They douse the curtains of their chamber in chloride of lime <laughs> to try to counteract the smell. It's almost like, you know, we'll just huff some chlorine <laughs> and see if that uh, wards it away. But uh, pretty soon after, this parliament authorized the construction of a new sewer system. And, uh, and of course, you know, it's like, classic politician issues, right? Like there's a major public problem and then nothing gets done about it until it like personally affects them.
0: Mm-hmm. Until you're actually dousing your drapes with, yeah. with, with chlorine. Uh, but of course, the, the installation of the
1: sewer system was was a great thing for England. During the 1860s and 70s, there was this engineer named Sir Joseph Bazalgette. Uh, he had plans for a contained sewer and drainage system. And, and during the 60s and 70s, these were built. And so the main benefit of the sewer system was that it would keep sewage separate from the water supply. And this, of course, was this huge revolution in public health. Like, they, they found afterwards that, of course, well-drained areas that had this sewer system functioning uh, and safely removing sewage were kept free from cholera epidemics that broke out in other areas in the following years. And I, I think this brings us to a major issue from this era that we need to consider about um, about the toilet and about sewer systems, while the flush toilet in the form of the 19th century water closet, the Ajax, was a great invention in a way, it did not make things better on its own, or at least not in a public way, because simply flushing your untreated waste out into channels mingled with downstream drinking water actually makes things like worse than simply pooping in a pit latrine. In order to improve public health and save lives, the flush toilet couldn't exist on its own. It had to be paired with a safe, dedicated sewage system to deal with waste properly. It's only because of public infrastructure that the toilet could become all it could be
0: absolutely. It, it reminds me of our recent discussion of um, of wheels. yeah, you know the wheel is great. The wheeled cart is great but you've got to have roads. You've got to have (laughs) some sort of of system uh, that, that allows you to maximize this technology.
1: This is a really common theme that's coming up in invention history is that people often have this idea of like, you know technological revolutions happening because a lone inventor had a brilliant idea and that one idea changed everything. That seems like it's its so rarely that that's the case. I mean, major technological revolutions tend very often to depend on large investments in public infrastructure to support the new technology.
0: That's an excellent point. And on that note, we're going to take one more break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about Thomas Crapper And we're going to talk about the legacy of the flush toilet.
1: Okay, we're back. So it's time to talk about Thomas Crapper. We know now he did not invent the flush toilet. But what was the role of Mr. Thomas Crapper? And... I I noticed I was doing this when I was like making notes for this episode. I don't know why my brain keeps doing this, but I don't usually call random historical dudes mister when I type their names. But I wonder if like talking about toilets makes me naturally tend toward sort of pointless formality. Maybe an interesting psychological thing to return to. Or maybe you
0: just feel weird referring to him as crapper and you feel like you need to designate that you're talking about a person and you're not using a crude term for a toilet.
1: I'm distinguishing him from Dr. Thomas Crapper. (laughs)
0: All right. Well, Thomas Crapper enters the picture in the 1860s. And basically what he does is he redesigns and supplies high-end plumbed-in products. So we're talking the likes of uh, the cast iron bath shower combo, elaborate shower screens, cast iron pedestal wash bins, uh, you know, install some extra mirrors, hot and cold mixture taps. He improved the S-bin plumbing trap uh, that we talked about in the 1880s and invented the U-bin plumbing trap. Hmm. Uh, And then, uh, but you know, this is all part of a large—not just one plumber going around doing all this. He founded Thomas Crapper and Company in London, a sanitary equipment company. And he held nine patents, uh, three for water closet designs, uh, such as the the floating ball cock uh, inside the toilet tank. But he didn't actually patent a toilet. So we, we have to double down on what we said early. Not only did he not invent the toilet, he didn't even reinvent the toilet. Uh, but he did improve upon some of the, um, the, the the details of the design.
1: Yeah, his major role seems to be more a case of like owning a business and practicing good branding than yeah. of actual invention. And, you know, everywhere around the world, people will associate my name with toilets. And (laughs) apparently this happened because, like, you know, you'd go and look inside toilets in in Great Britain and they'd just say crapper in them. And this helped lead to the – to people calling the toilet a crapper Hmm. in a vulgar way. Though, you're probably now wondering, Thomas Crapper – is his name and association with the toilet the origin of the term crap, meaning human excrement? Before I looked this up, I, I was thinking, well, maybe it is. Maybe the term comes
0: from his name and his association with the toilet. Because it would seem a... a a huge coincidence, right? That, yeah. That this this guy who made his 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 money off of the toilet would be named Crapper. Actually, it just is a huge coincidence. <laughs> his the word
1: crap does not come from his name. So the word crap comes in English. It comes from uh, originally the old French crapé or crapé. From the Middle Latin crappa, words meaning something like siftings or chaff. And so the original use of the word crap in English refers to things dropped or cast away or discarded. Hmm. So you can see why this might come to mean excrement, right? It's the thing you throw away or shed. Okay.
0: Okay. So when when we're using the word now and we're referring to our stuff is our crap mm-hmm. like that is actually more the more authentic use of the word. Kind of yeah, it's it's the stuff that could be you know
1: it's it's execrable.
0: yeah like oh, I left all my crap at the hotel. Well, I've got to go go back for that. That's the authentic use of crap.
1: Well, I don't know. If you really want it back, then maybe it's not crap. Though I guess you're just like being cynical there. You yeah. You know, like, oh, it's all crap. I could lose it all. It doesn't matter. Uh, funny enough, this also seems to be uh, th- very similar to the etymology of another English word, which comes from the Anglo-Saxon skittan in turn from the Proto-Germanic skit, meaning to cut or shear or split. In other words, to separate from the body. Hmm. And just because this sent me down a rabbit trail that I uh, ended up finding interesting, the the root of the English word science is also apparently somewhat related here. So – the word science comes from Latin scientia or scientia, knowledge, and from uh, skira or to know, which in Latin is probably derived from the Proto-Indo-European, which of course is like the granddaddy language of, of many languages around the world. Uh, ski or sky, meaning to cut or separate, because I think the, the logic of this word is when you know things, you separate fact from fiction. You separate truth from falsehood. Mm. And so knowledge and science is sort of metaphorically a cutting and separating process, Uh, another one of these wonderful examples of abstract words in language with concrete metaphorical roots. But anyway, whether you are crapping or sciencing, some part of you is cutting away and separating.
0: All right. Well, let's get to the modern toilet then. Let's get let's get to the modern Western flushing toilet. Okay. What are we dealing with here?
1: Now, there are, of course, there are plenty of different designs for like what you do when it's time to use the toilet, right? Uh, the, and we can talk about those as we go on. But one of the features that I think many modern toilets. Uh, can really boast about that's really cool is that they don't bother with solid valves at the bottom of the bowl. Yes. Some do like, uh, like some airplane toilets do. Right.
0: Yeah, but that's a whole but, different uh, kettle of fish. We'll have to come back to airline toilets and space toilets in the future.
1: Right. Instead, in, in a lot of these modern toilets, it's all just water and pipe design making use of the physics concept of a siphon. So, Robert, have you ever made a siphon? Uh, oh,
0: yes, of course. Yeah. Every time I use a
1: drinking straw. Oh, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, like, you know, of course, a siphon, like you can... And put one bucket up on a counter and another bucket down on the floor. And you can like if you put a hose between them and you start sucking water up into the hose from the top one, and then put the bottom of the hose in the bottom bucket, it'll drain all the way down, even though the water has to go up into the
0: hose from the top bucket. Yeah, I feel like if you if you've ever uh, you know spent enough time playing with like a, a you know one of those uh, those those cheap yard swimming pools and a mm-hmm. hose as a child, you probably did this. Yeah.
1: Um, So in the most common model of like the modern Western toilet, there's always water sitting in the bowl. And the evacuation pipe where the stuff goes away from the bottom of the bowl, it curves up when it leaves the bowl. It curves up higher than the water level within the toilet before snaking back down under the floor. And this keeps the water sitting in the toilet without draining out when it's not being flushed. And it also forms a type of S-trap to block sewer gases from from escaping into the toilet the house. So then when it's time to flush, water from the cistern is released down into the bowl. This raises the water level above the bend in the pipe, which of course causes the water to begin draining down into the lower part of the pipe, which sucks all the contents out of the bowl by the siphon action. And something about me just finds this a really beautiful and elegant solution. I love the fact that the the toilet doesn't need to have a trap door or anything like that
0: in the bottom of it it's just a correctly shaped pipe absolutely and again we should we should we should thank the universe every day that that is the case yeah uh, yeah,
1: and so another thing, of course, is that th- there are other components. Like you,
0: you could talk about how
1: the cistern tends to work in a toilet with the cistern. It tends to have components like a float, which is designed to measure the right amount of uh, water to allow into the cistern. Like one of the things that uh, Thomas Crapper held one of the patents for was the ball cock, right? Mm-hmm. Which yes. floats up and it like – trips a switch that says, hey, you can stop filling the cistern with water now because the water level has reached the right level. And there's all that kind of stuff. But the basic principles of the toilet, while we don't often think about them, once you see how it works, it's actually very simple. It's very elegant. It's a beautiful machine.
0: Yeah, I will say that I'm not really a handy person at all, but I I, I recently repaired uh, the, uh, the 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 machinery in the tank of my toilet when uh, something was off and i was able to look up a video on youtube follow the instructions Make the repair myself, and uh, I just felt like a million bucks afterwards.
1: It's a great feeling, isn't it? Yeah, like fixing a water appliance.
0: Yeah, but then also it's like you can you can see it all working, like it all it, it all makes sense. You know, yeah. when, when you when you when you when you can you can flush the toilet, watch watch uh, these mechanisms uh, move, watch the water level change. Uh, you know, it's it's very you can absorb it very easily.
1: But as we talked about in the last episode, the toilet is not just a beautiful and elegant machine to a Meyer from a design point of view, of course, it does provide a ton of convenience in our lives. But also, as we said last time, the toilet saves lives. They say it again: toilets save lives. This is a life and death issue. This is a major, important technology that that needs that we need to improve access to all around the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, we really have to to, to stress the sanitation issues here. Um, you know, and it you know it reminds me of another uh, issue with. Um, with with waste and the spread of uh, illnesses and parasites uh, especially uh, hookworms mm-hmm. uh, hookworms uh, uh, being a you know parasite that can uh, can cause uh, uh, illness in humans, and uh, these will typically be acquired in, say, a latrine field. Um, And uh, basically, parasites uh, are acquired when bare feet come into contact with infected feces. Uh, They enter through the feet, and they make their way into the host's intestines, resulting in anemia, malnutrition. And in the early 20th century, uh, John D. Rockefeller funded a campaign to decrease uh, hookworm infections in the American South. And one of the key methods was to impose latrine pits of at least four feet as microscopic hookworms can travel up to four feet in soil from a site of defecation.
1: Yeah. And so th- this emphasizes again that like if you're not removing sewage to like a, a treatment facility or something like that, or you know, there are all kinds of variables that come into play about how safe like a pit storage kind of thing can be. You want to keep it closed to prevent like flies and stuff from getting out. But also if it's not sealed off from the ground soil, Mm -hmm. if it's not dug deep enough, you can encounter problems as well.
0: Now I have to stress that I do really love my current plumbing situation. Uh, and I, I really, especially after these episodes, I really am thankful for my functional toilet. But uh, I sense a butt coming. Yes. You've got beef. I do, I do. And uh, it's twofold. On one hand, there's the, <laughs> there's the just the weirdness of the fact that That when you flush a toilet, you are uh, flushing—unless you have a gray water system uh, hooked up in some uh, way, shape, or form, Mm -hmm. you are flushing drinking water. You are using perfectly drinkable water uh, to send your urine and feces down into the sewer.
1: Yeah, it would be great if there was a gray water system for—
0: Right, and people have worked on it, and in some places, these are in place. Uh, And then, of course, in some parts of the the world, you're going to have— uh, of, of toilet that is not using drinkable water to flush just by virtue of the availability of drinkable water. Right. Uh, okay. So that's one dr- ridiculous uh, level. But the other is that the Western toilets have rebranded defecation as something that should be done from a seated position, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, You know, the, the throne, the chair, when naturally the human body evolved to defecate from a squatting position. And plenty of people still do it this way, especially in Asia, Africa and the Middle East. Squat- toilets can still be found all over the place uh, in, in, in these areas, utilizing modern flushing aesthetics in many cases and functionality, but with the basic concept of squatting still in play.
1: I think squatting toilets are becoming trendy in the West too, aren't they?
0: Well, not full-blown squatting toilets uh-huh. like where they where you squat over the uh, floor-based apparatus. Yeah. Uh, you'll see more like uh, the Squatty Potty, which uh, I, I have a Squatty Potty. I love it. Uh, yeah. But uh, it allows you to essentially use a, a western throne toilet, mm-hmm. but with more of a squatting posture, uh, which again is what our bodies evolved to do. Likewise, you can get some toilet seats that have room for your bare feet to uh, to, to, uh, to, to rest on so that you can squat over that. I've never used one of those, but, uh, but, but I'm interested because that's, that's that's basically how my, my son likes to use a toilet so uh-huh. uh, so maybe that's what I need to get him down the line. <laughs> Now, toilet designs continue to evolve. We've, we're utilizing high-tech bells and whistles typified by some of the Japanese toilets that we you often see featured in videos. Yeah, and, uh, it's almost a cliche at this point, like the high-tech Japanese toilet. Right, yeah, various buttons that you can push for. I mean, some of it makes perfect sense. Like Being able to call for help from the toilet mm-hmm. is, is a great idea, uh, especially if you're dealing with, uh, with you know, an elderly population. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: one thing I've seen that I thought was kind of interesting was a uh, – I believe this was Japanese, but I'm not positive. But it was a, a toilet that has a built-in sort of like noisemaker. Yes. Uh, that So th- there's of course a, a common cultural phenomenon of – people being embarrassed about the sounds they make when they're on the toilet in a place where people can hear them. Right. So if you're in a public bathroom in a stall or something, you're using a toilet, people will often just continuously flush the toilet to co- because it's loud and that covers up the sounds of what they're doing. But that also wastes a lot of water. You, right. you don't need to do that. So a way around that is uh, you can you can help pe- uh, accommodate people's sense of embarrassment and, and modesty Without wasting all the water by just having a, a loud, flushing sound play when you press a button.
0: Well, I think the Romans might have been onto something here with having live music uh, in the toilet. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should go that route. Maybe not live music, but maybe just piped in uh, like loud rock music. Uh-huh. Yeah, maybe that'll be better for everybody. You'll save, you'll save uh, money. Uh, t- i guess two other key innovations here one that i think is is excellent and that is various low flush features which right. help save the amount of water uh, reduce the amount of water that you're you're doing to flush your business uh, another innovation that i absolutely despise is the auto flush toilet oh, in which a oh, robotic terrible. sensor yeah, will decide when you need a flush. And it almost at least the ones that I've ever used almost always decides to flush at the, the the absolute wrong time. Yeah. And will end up flushing too many times or just phantom flushing, uh you know, with nobody in there.
1: There there was a toilet in the building here one time that I encountered that was just forever flushing. It was stuck in eternal flush. Mm-hmm. It never
0: stopped. <laughs> Like I, I seriously I, – I end up wasting uh, extra toilet paper because my first step is to mask the sensor with toilet paper to, to wrap <laughs> – to give it a blindfold <laughs> so that it won't uh, 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 scare me and fr- – <laughs> like I, I, I don't need to feel like a predator is about to attack me. While I'm doing my business, and I've done the same when I've had to take my my son to the toilet. It's like it's gonna scare. It's gonna scare him. It's just ridiculous. Uh, so I mean, it's a great idea ultimately, but I think the sensor technology is not quite there.
1: Are you the person who keeps vandalizing the the, no, the auto no, toilets no, no, no. in our building? There's
0: no need to vandalize them. I want to I want to stress that because people do literally take them apart. Yeah, but there's no need to do that. You can just wrap <laughs> some toilet paper around their sensor, blindfold the the toilet, and it'll be fine. Now another interesting bit of, of difference in cultural toilet design uh, is the um, the flachspüle plate in older German toilets. Oh, what's this? Did you did you ever encounter any of I these? I don't think so. So I got to experience some of these when I went on a high school trip to Germany uh, back. I guess it was like the late '90s. Mm-hmm. They weren't everywhere, but they were some of the places. And apparently, you, you don't find as many anymore. Um, basically it's it's very much just like any other Western toilet, except there's kind of a raised plate upon which the the fecal matter will will fall, and then when you flush it's uh, it's flushed away hmm. uh, off of that little plate. And contrary to what you might have heard, these are not examination plates. That was kind of like the, 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 the I don't know, the not, not even an urban legend, but it was just like false information where people say, oh, that's so that you can poop and then you want to look at your poop and it's on a plate <laughs> for you to see it. Okay. No, r- rather the feature was aimed at preventing you from splashing yourself with toilet water when you defecated. Ah. Yeah.
1: Well, that's a smart idea.
0: I agree. Uh, but uh, apparently they've... You can you can design a toilet in such a way that maybe there's less splash without having to use the the plate because the drawback to the plate is that sometimes it requires more uh, brushing of the toilet bowl. Mm. Now speaking of toilet bowl innovation, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the infamous masculine toilet. Oh yes, this has been in the news. <laughs> yeah, championed by former acting United States Attorney General Matt Whitaker.
1: Yeah, what well, he was representing some business that like. Uh... They what they they claim to sort of like be advocates on behalf of uh, inventions and one of the inventions that somebody was doing business with them with was this this toilet for how did they put it what was the polite terminology well endowed men I yeah. guess. Uh,
0: the idea being that that oh well these men their penises are longer and if they sit on the toilet their penis is going to get in the water of the toilet uh-huh. and therefore they need more distance between seat and water um, which you know I. I would argue that this could be avoided in plenty of other ways, such as <laughs> a, you could use a squatty potty. I think that uh-huh. would probably help. Or just basic manipulation and awareness of one's own genitals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also, I can't help but wonder, and maybe this is something that is detailed in the patent information or <laughs> the, the, the literature surrounding the masculine toilet, is wouldn't it result in a maximum splashdown? It's like a giant deep bowl, yeah. Yeah, so it seems like... Yeah, you, you, okay, you can sit on the toilet and you can feel like you've, you have know, you, you don't have to worry about your anatomy touching the water until you know the, the, the fecal matter drops like five feet and then splashes up <laughs> like a torpedo uh, uh, went off. So I, I don't know. I have a lot of questions about the practicality of the masculine toilet. I think it's only 12 inches, not okay. five feet. <laughs> but that seems actually – that's like the worst distance, right? Yeah, that, that seems like that would be maximum splashdown distance. Yeah. If it were five feet, yeah, you, you'd be fine. You have to climb up a ladder to get on your toilet. And then it would make you look like a tiny person on a giant toilet, which probably runs against like the, the masculine impulse of the design, right? I'd
1: have to imagine if anybody actually bought something like that, it was probably not someone who literally needed it.
0: They just they needed the world to to think they needed it. But maybe we're wrong. Hey, if, if anyone listening out there has used a masculine <laughs> toilet, uh, let us Do know. Do not email us. Do not. I don't want to hear about it. The, I, I seriously do want to hear about anybody, any kind of toilet we've we've discussed here, any kind of uh, latrine situation. If you have insightful um, experience with them, be it uh, various uh, uh, squat toilets, squatty potties, um, dry latrines, wet latrines, washing versus um, wiping, I want to hear about all of it. You know, we can we can withhold the names as necessary. Okay, I got to finish today with a with a great
1: story about toilet technology and and a flush fiasco <laughs> okay. from the 20th century history. Do you want to hear about when a toilet sank a Nazi
0: submarine? Oh, yes, please. So,
1: had you come across this story before?
0: I had not. No, I hadn't yeah. really thought much about U-boats and toilets, really. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's inherently a fascinating subject,
1: right? So, on April 14th, 1945, you had a German U-boat called U-1206 that was forced to surface after a German officer screwed up the toilet and caused poison gas to vent into the oh. crew areas. So fortunately, we know this officer's name and he will be remembered in history. The officer was named Captain Lieutenant Carl Adolf Schlitt. And the submarine was – so it was traveling submerged I think in the North Sea. It was off the coast of Scotland. And this particular U-boat had been fitted with a new model of underwater toilet that was supposed to work at greater depths I think. And there might be some kind of pressure – pressurization issue going on. I'm not sure. Uh, But so anyway, for whatever reason, it was a new model of toilet. And the story goes that Schlitt did his business – on this new high-tech toilet but couldn't figure out how he was supposed to flush it. Uh, So he called in tech support and the engineer who arrived apparently pulled the wrong lever or something, operated the machine incorrectly and seawater flooded in and it soaked a bunch of electrical batteries underneath the toilet which in turn started releasing poisonous chlorine gas into the cabin and then the boat was forced to go to the surface to ventilate with the outside air because of the poison gas but it was in enemy water off the coast of Scotland and allied aircraft quickly attacked it. Then the boat was damaged and the crew was forced to abandon ship. Somehow I'm sure this is not the only case uh, in history of critical problems caused by pooping on a submarine. It, it had to have happened before.
0: But uh, th- this is the story of Carl Car- of Adol- uh, Adolf Schlitt. Huh. That is interesting. I, I'd never heard that one before. but, like this was the the new model. yeah, it was perhaps it was invented because of previous problems. So it was there was perhaps a whole string of other uh, uh, u-boat uh, just general um uh, submarine uh, bathroom issues. I mean, we've covered on the show before, and stuff to blow your mind anyway, the history of. Of, uh, of toilets in uh, in orbit, toilets yeah. in, uh, in in microgravity, like that's that's a whole engineering uh, fiasco unto itself. Yeah,
1: well, but it's also amazing. I mean, if you ever wanted to poop into a vacuum cleaner,
0: <laughs> yeah, as opposed to just pooping into a bag, which was the the earlier option, yeah. right?
1: Everybody has wanted to poop into a vacuum cleaner. Who
0: hasn't <laughs> thought about that? All right, well, we're going to leave it there uh, with pooping into the vacuum cleaner. Uh, because uh, it does make you wonder like what does the future hold for the toilet to what extent have we we reached peak toilet i mean we keep we we do see new models, new innovations coming out every year. There are toilet companies that depend on finding new twists, pushing new designs uh, so I wonder what humans will be pooping into uh, in say a hundred years, two hundred years
1: yeah one thing i I could mention uh in my research, I came across – there was an article that had a quote from a Dutch architect named uh, Rim Koolhaas, mm-hmm. and he said that the toilet – this is the way he put it. It's the fundamental zone of interaction on the most intimate level between humans and architecture –
0: Yeah, okay.
1: I can kind of see that, yeah. It's almost like we're we're built because like you got other furniture in your house, Mm -hmm. but you move that around usually or you don't have such a deeply intimate relationship with
0: it as you do with the toilet. Right, usually not. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, most people do not have a carnal relationship with their furniture. Right. But everybody has a very intimate relationship with the toilet.
1: Yeah, so I like thinking about it like that. It's almost like it's the, you know, we mentioned earlier that like the S pipe is sort of like the sentry that uh or the, the trap, whatever it is, mm-hmm. the, the water trap that the sentry that guards the, the the gates and doesn't let demons from odor hell come up into your house. The toilet is also sort of like a, a diplomat. Uh it's it's how you interface with the world of of infrastructure beyond most most deeply and most fundamentally, it's what it's how you interface your body with the sewer. It's Communion with the arteries of civilization and modern sanitation.
0: It does make me wonder, however, how do the toilets on the Starship Enterprise work? Do you think they're like teleporter based? Well, I would guess that they probably just uh, atomize
1: the uh, yeah. the the stuff and turn it into raw materials to be used in the uh, the what, what's it called the you know the stuff that the what, what's it That's called the replicator thing, replicator is, yeah. yeah
0: okay yeah I mean it's just atoms why not yeah
1: no problem with that. I mean, poop is poop is unclean, but atoms aren't unclean. That's right. You reduce everything to its
0: basic atoms, it, it's, it's all good.
1: And it only takes the energy of like 30,000 nuclear bombs.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, uh, again, we'd love to hear from everyone out there if you have any insight on the – the, the evolution of the toilet uh, the toilet technology across the ages and indeed where it'll go in the future. Perhaps there, there is a wonderful treatment of of, of uh, science fiction uh, uh, toilets out there, and we'd love to hear about that as well. If you want to check out other episodes of Invention, head on over to inventionpod.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts. If you want to talk about the show, with other listeners uh, and with us, uh, you should look up Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. It's a Facebook group, uh, and really it's like the only thing I use Facebook for. I'll do some family photos for my own private uh, stuff, but then as far as like sharing things on Facebook, I feel like I generally just share them there. Uh, So go there, it's a cool place. Uh, let's see, what else? Oh, yeah. You they can also buy uh, an Invention invention merchandise if you want. We have our cool logo. You can get that on a shirt or on a sticker. And uh, the best thing you can do is just simply re- make sure you have subscribed to the show and then rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Absolutely. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer,
1: Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for a future, to tell us finally how to use the three seashells, or just to say hello, you can email us at uh, contact at inventionpod.com